of Isaiah 40. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like Mark in the video? A situation where life's circumstances are out of your control and your future is very uncertain. I'm sure that many of us have found ourselves in that situation, whether in the big circumstances of life or the small circumstances of life, in a situation where we know and we are rendered to the point of understanding that we do not have control. The circumstances are beyond our control. And just as he was saying in the videos, what we want to look at this morning is we're kicking off a new sermon series, You Can Change, and it's about the four G's, four truths about God, that, that as we believe these truths, not just with our head, but we believe these truths in our hearts, the man, change begins to happen in our hearts in the way that we perceive life and the way that we perceive ourselves. And so, so this morning, we want to look at the truth that he stated in the video, that God is great. And look at what that means, that God is great. And God is great, and ultimately God is in control so that I don't have to be in control. Not only do I not have to be in control, but I'm not in control. And as we walk through this morning, I want us to see that in all the, the tendencies that we have to have control and the sin that that brings into our, our lives, that behind every one of those sins is a desire for us to be in control. And we're believing a lie about God. And the lie that we're believing is that he is not in control of our lives and that he is not in control of our situation and of this universe. And so we want to look this morning about the truth that God is great, that God is in control. And, and with our hearts and with our heads, turn towards that truth and know that God wants to do a transforming work in our heart and in our lives. To turn, turn towards this truth that he is great and that he is in control. So if you look at me with Isaiah 40, starting in verse 12, and want to walk through this passage and just look at several truths that really this is pulling about, about the greatness of God and who he is and what this means. So starting in verse 12, it says, Who has measured the waters... In the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him God the path of justice and who taught him God knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding. I want to stop right there because I believe this is, this is where we see a first truth that Isaiah is wanting to say through the prophet Isaiah. God's speaking through Isaiah about himself. And he's saying, God is the author. God is the author. The author of what? Of everything. Somebody sits down, they write a book. They have come up with, with the ideas, especially if this is a narrative book where scenes are playing out and there's characters and there's problems and there's solutions. The author has, has manufactured that and, and determined what that is going to be. And God is the author. The author of what? He's the author of creation and of life. That's what it's speaking about. When he said, who's, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and, and marked off the heavens with a span? In the original language, that word for span would just be a measure between your, your thumb and your pinky like this. And this is a span that's saying God has measured the, the heavens of the earth, the galaxies that we now know from our science and scientific studies, that there's millions of galaxies that exist and aren't just stars. And it says that God measures that within the span of his hand. He weighs the, the mountains and scales and the hills and balance. And we know the truth of this from the Old Testament scripture. And it's always pointed back to that God is the author. He's the author of life. 
He's the author of creation. Not only is this passage saying that God is the author of creation, the author of life, but he's, he's the author of all wisdom and of all truth. Verses 13 and 14, as you look in that, it's saying that, that God, he consults no one for wisdom or understanding. You or me, we may go to somebody that we think is older and been in a situation where, where they're wiser and they've learned from their mistakes and we go to them for wisdom and I, wanna, I need understanding in this life situation or this family situation and you've been there. We do that as humans. This passage is saying no one can give God understanding. No one can give God this knowledge or this wisdom. He doesn't consult anyone. He is God. It said, no one tells him right or wrong or what to judge guilty or innocent. That's what it's saying in that verse when it says that who has shown him the path of, of justice? You know, as we, we had all these babies up here, and that was one of mine. As our kids grow up, we, we, we teach them, and we, we find out real quick that they know kind of what wrong is, right? They can get into wrong. They're kind of just born coming out and, and being disobedient in different ways. And we, we try to shape them and show them the difference between right and wrong. Don't touch this. Touch this. But no one tells God that, what is right or wrong, because he has defined it. He's the author of that. He's the author of wisdom and of knowledge. So no one is telling God what's right or wrong, and no one's telling God who is guilty and who is innocent. That's God's job, and that's what this passage is, is saying. And it's also saying no one shows God things that are new. Who has taught God knowledge? You or me, I don't know about you, but for me, I love to, to learn new information. I love to to see things that are new, maybe the latest technology or the gadget or Apple putting out something new every couple of months and I want to see what's new, what are the new features and go in and you look at the features and you read the features or I want to know a new person and find out about them and see what's new and this, this pastor saying, well, because God's the author of life and he's the author of creation, the author of wisdom and knowledge and truth, no one shows anything to God that is new. He knows it all. And we keep reading in verse 15 of the passage. It says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for, full, for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him, and they are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. And the second truth, not only is God the, the author of all things, but God holds a scale of measurement over all things. God holds a scale of measurement over all things. We don't need them as much anymore, unless you're in some kind of profession that requires us because we have our phones. But you know, the map scales, I think we used to use those a lot more than we do now, right? So you have the map scale that can show you that distance. And by the way, if you ever try to explain that to some fifth and sixth graders and you have a good way to do that, of what that map scale means, and please, please show me. It was difficult for my, my kids that I teach to understand that. But we have this map scale, and it shows us on this map the, the distance of what it is. And this kind of goes back to what Isaiah was saying earlier in the passage. God holds this large scale of measurement over all things. The whole universe, all the galaxies and the stars and everything within them fits here within this span. And his scale is ultimate. And he sees all things and he knows all things and sees how things are orchestrating together in ways that we cannot see, in ways that we cannot understand. Be like for us, if I look at a map, I'm able to see clearly the path from California to New York. Oh, you would just go here and I can do that with my finger. Now, if I get on the road, I'm going to need directions. Because from California, when I have this perspective of looking at the road, I can't see New York from California when I'm on the road. And I need directions. But if I pull back and I have this scale of a map, then I can see clearly from California to Maine or California to New York. 
I don't know if you've ever been, uh, how many of you like puzzles and putting together puzzles? I don't like putting together puzzles. I think I've done that one time in my life. You ever finished the puzzle and you're like, man, we got it done. We've been working on this puzzle for days. You get it all done and you know that you just have a few little pieces there and you look over and the pieces that you have left, you got about five pieces left and there's just no way. You know, you get, you're like, I'm on a roll. I'm putting everything in. I'm getting the puzzles. Oh, yeah, everything's fitting. Okay, these five more pieces fit them in. Wait. Okay. These five pieces won't fit for what I've got. So I've made, I've made a mistake somewhere. And you got the puzzle pieces left over. This doesn't happen with God because he sees how the puzzle pieces fit together. And he knows. God's perspective. He puts a scale on the universe. And just like we're able to look at a map. And see, from California to New York, God's able to look at a map, not just of our individual lives and know it's beginning to its end, but of this whole galaxy and universe and every individual's life. He looks at it from the scales if it's a map. And he knows from beginning, from California to New York, your beginning and your destination. That's the way that God looks at things. And that's what Isaiah is saying through these verses. As we go on to read in this passage, verse 18, it's saying that God, third truth from this passage, God is not to be compared God is not to be compared. Continue reading with me in verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and cast it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He's talking about the idols of the other nations that have been infiltrated some into the Israelites. These, these idols that are literally made of wood. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And God's speaking through the prophet Isaiah. He's having to use these terms like this because there's really no way for us to understand the greatness of God. These terms to where we would understand how much bigger and how much greater he is than our understanding of this universe. And so God is not to be compared. He's not to be compared to what? To any other thing that is, has worth. And don't miss this. Because for their time period in this Israelite history and the surrounding nations, ancient Near East history... They put worth on these poles that were made of wood, and they called them gods. And this still happens at other places in, in the world today, where, where physical items are seen as very valuable and very worthy of somebody's praise in their life, and they'll do things that will completely alter their life for the sake of this item that is made of material wood or whatever it may be. And we say, that's weird. That's foreign. But don't miss the principle behind this of what Isaiah is saying. God's not to be compared, not just with wood idols. We would probably know that in our culture. God's not to be compared with anything that we think is worthy. There's plenty of things in this room that we think have worth because they do have worth. My, my child that was up here earlier, she has worth. My wife has worth. You would place relationships and things in your life that have worth. But God is so much greater and far worthy than those things that he's not to be compared to that. In any kind of way of the things that we would place worth on. He's not to be compared to things that are needy. 
He's saying these idols and these things, they need you. They need your food. They need the things that you bring to them. They need the sacrifices and the cuts of your body. He says don't compare God to anything that needs something. Because God doesn't need anything from us. He needs nothing from me and he needs nothing from you. He is great. He says don't compare God to things that hold earthly power. We may look and say, oh, maybe our president or, or really more so the nations of other countries who are ruled by one king or one dictator and they have a lot of power and at the snap of their finger their army can invade another country at the snap of the finger people can be executed they hold great power this is what he's saying princes of this day of ancient near east time old testament history they held great power get me this do this for me i'll move the nation here don't compare god to anything on this earth that has power anything else that we would think would have power because it says he brings princes to nothing. The things that we hold as powerful. He is so much more powerful that he says, don't compare me to those things. It's not comparable. So don't compare God to anything. God's the author of all life. And God holds the scale of measurement over all things. Isaiah is painting this picture of the greatness of God. And let's continue reading these last few verses. Verse 24. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown. Scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither. And the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then shall you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, bringing out all the host of everything that's created. He can call everything by name. And he does this by what? The greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And this is one of many passages in the Bible that speak about the greatness of God. I want to share a few others that talk about the greatness of God and what we come to term really as God's sovereignty. That means his rule and his knowledge of everything in this life. That there is really nothing in this life that would happen that is, takes God by surprise. He doesn't get surprised. He controls all things in and of themselves. Psalm 145.3, Josie read this psalm earlier. Great is the Lord and he greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. Your translation may say it's unfathomable. You get this fathom, this measuring stick that they would measure units of water with and said you could pull out that measuring stick that would gather these, these large bodies of water and it's just not there. If you try to measure the greatness of God, you can't do it. It's unfathomable. It's unmeasurable, the greatness of God and how great he is. Ephesians 1.11, as Paul is writing to the church at at Ephesus, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about believers. And he's saying that you have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. For those of us who are believers, who have surrendered our life to Christ, it's already been determined by Christ that he's going to work our lives. He's going to work our situations. For what purpose? For our purposes? No, for his purpose. For the purpose of him who works all things According to whose counsel? Who's he going to counsel with? We've already covered this. No one. It's his counsel. The counsel of his will. Your life, if you're a believer, is being orchestrated in and out by the counsel and for the purpose. And all these circumstances and all the situations that you may face, good or bad, for the purpose of his will. This is one of my favorite passages in Proverbs 21.1. 1. 
that just speaks so much to the greatness and to the sovereignty of God. It says, the king's heart. Now, our concept of the king is, is hard to imagine as it was back then for them. I mean, the king held power. The king did whatever he wanted to do. And when people under him, when he said to do it, they did it, and they did it quickly for fear of their lives. The king's heart. So the heart of the king that can be set on his desires for his nation. It can be bent towards evilness. It says the king's heart, it's a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. And I love that image of these people on earth that are so powerful and so set in their ways. And it says, for God, that king's heart, I could change it like that if I wanted to. It's like a stream of water. You put a puddle of water in your hand and you just turn it back and forth. Which way do you want it to go? It speaks about the greatness of God. Last verse that really shows us a lot about the greatness of God comes from Acts 4, 28. And you get all these believers, the early church, they're full of the Holy Spirit. Peter and John, they've been arrested and they've been released. And so the believers are together and they've been praying all this time that Peter and John would be released. And so they're facing some persecution from the, from the uh, religious leaders of that time. And they come back together and they're praying this prayer for boldness. And within this prayer for boldness, they're talking about really the gospel story. They're saying, Jesus, man, the God that this, this, we know that the events that happened, that Pontius Pilate and that Herod and these bad guys and, and the Jewish you know, people and the, all the religious leaders, they wanted to, to have Jesus crucified and killed. And these were evil acts that were done. But when it talks about that, this is a part of their pray, prayer that God, you wanted to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Evilness was a part of what happened on the cross. Evil actions and evil intents sent Jesus to the cross. But it's speaking about how this has always been a part of God's plan. And he has orchestrated this evil ultimately for the good of we know Christ dying on the cross for our sins. God is great. God is in control. We could go on and on, and we could spend the next two hours walking through verses that speak to the greatness of God. But we know that God is great, and sometimes this is just easy, maybe easier, and not, not easy for everybody to wrap around in their mind that God is great, and that he's powerful, and that he's control. But for some of us, it's very easy to do that with our head, but it's much harder to do that with our hearts, to truly trust that, to truly believe that God is great. And I know this, I know this in my life, and I know this is a probability in your life, because we have control issues. We want to take control. A few examples of, of, of just common everyday things that would show us that we have control issues, that we want control in our lives. You ever had your computer crash? That happened to me about two months ago. And I had had about three years worth of very important information on this computer. And it just crashed, and I lost control. And you ever, if, if that's ever happened to you, I don't know if you ever screamed out. I remember the moment that I realized it happened. It wasn't going to come on a little, have a Mac, and a little smiley face was down or whatever, and hard drive problems or whatever it said, and just, oh, no, why? Why did you do that? Who am I talking to in that moment? Maybe you've been in a different situation where that's just your voice. Why? Who, who are we talking to? Am I talking to the computer cosmos of the world and they've orchestrated that my hard drive would, would crash and they're controlling every wire in my hard drive? I don't know. I don't, I don't think that that exists. Who I'm really talking to is whoever I think is responsible for being in control of this universe and what happens. Why? Why would that happen? 
maybe for many of you, even this morning, this is something that I face on a weekly basis. And if you are anything around downtown Hattiesburg, you want control. You're trying to get somewhere at a certain time, right? And you say, you know what? I'm going to leave 30 minutes early. So I'll really be in control of the situation. Cause so I'll get there about 10 minutes early because I've been late the last five times. So I want to get there 10 minutes early. And you're coming down here and maybe you got to go into pedal or wherever you're going downtown. And what happens? What ha- what, what's, what's the common occurrence that hangs us up? Train. Like 50 a day, right? And, and not only just a train, like a long train that's going slow, but a long train that's going slow. And we've waited for 10 minutes now. It's like, okay, okay, I'm glad I gave myself that time. I was trying to control that I'd be able to get there early. Gave myself that extra 10 minutes. All right, that 10 minutes is about coming up. But the, I see the train's about to pass. I've been waiting on it for that long. And you get to about right here and you start hearing the And this is when you start thinking in your mind, okay, i got to come up with some other solutions to get around this train. But unfortunately down here, if there's a train, it's just we're blocked in if we're trying to get somewhere. And so the train stops. And the train then proceeds to go in reverse. And so we're reversing. And we're like, okay, all right, we're going to have to sit here and wait for it to reverse. And I don't know how many times this happens, but I promise you I've had this happen. Reverse, we're almost there. I can literally see the beginning where the driver sits. My pathway is about to be cleared. We stop it again, and then we go full blast. But that frustrates us. I can't tell you how many choice words I have said in those moments that I should not have said when I'm trying to get somewhere. Because I want to be somewhere when I want to be somewhere. But the reality is I cannot control that situation. And why am I getting angry and frustrated? Because I want to be able to control that situation where the train would, would move. This can happen in the life of ministry and really trying to do good things for God in the name of God. Really with the right motives. Or at least it starts out with the right motives. And maybe you've planned a service project. Or, or maybe in your community groups you've planned something where you were going to do something. It just did not go to plan. It just did not happen. The people did not show up or the people you're going to work with didn't show up or they didn't have a plan together. And it frustrates us with those people. The same with relationships. Maybe a relationship doesn't go the way that you want it to go. You say, they should be acting like this. Why are they not acting like this? Well, I can't ultimately control someone else's behavior. I'm not in control of that. But I know that I, I want to be in control of that by the evidence of the frustration and the anger and the bitterness and the resentment that builds up in my heart and my life towards that person. I want to be in control of what they're doing. Have you ever had the prayer request? I mean, think about it. This is a prayer request. We're coming before God saying, God, you're in control. You're the one that's got to do something. But the prayer request, you can't go to sleep at night because you're worried about this prayer request. You're really genuinely concerned for somebody. And what's happening in their life. And you've prayed about it. But when you prayed about it, you kept worrying about it. And you kept thinking about it. And we did everything against what Philippians tells us to bring our prayers before God. To not be anxious but make our supplications before God. Knowing that he'll give us a peace that surpasses all understanding. We're like, where is this peace? I uttered the words to God of this prayer request. But where's the peace that should come? And really in our hearts... We just said, God, take care of this. But really, I want to control it. I know that you're in control of the situation, but I'm worried about it. 
to the point that I can't sleep. And so our prayer requests really become worry requests. We're not praying to God in a way that, God, you're in control. You can get, you're, you're sovereign over this. Your will will be done. Just help me to be okay with whatever happens, God. Help me to trust and know that you're working things for the good. No, it's a constant, repetitive comeback. God, I need you to take care of this situation. I need you to take care of this person. I need you, I need you, I need you to do this and do this. And really, it's worry. And our prayers become worry. Instead of our praying, really become a request to say, God, I'm okay with whatever's going to happen. You're in control of the situation. I release it to you. Give me the peace that surpasses understanding because the peace that surpasses understanding will only come when you release control of the situation and give it to God. And so we all know that we have control issues. And so we all know and are probably willing to admit in here that we can believe in the greatness of God in our heads but not believe in the greatness of God in our hearts. And ultimately, what are we saying to God? We are saying to God, no, God, you don't know best. Your rule is not good. Otherwise, why would you let this happen? And I love this series of, we're not going to go there, I'm going to skim over them very quickly. These series of events that happens in the gospel of Mark. As Mark is writing the accounts of Christ under inspiration of scripture, he begins to put in these series of events starting in Mark, 34, Mark 4, 35, that is showing the power of, of Christ. As he walked on this earth, fully God, fully man, it's showing the power of Christ. And the response that he calls from people is what is interesting, from his disciples. So starting in Mark 4, 35, we see where Jesus has this issue where he calms a storm. The disciples are in the boat, and you probably know the story. I don't spend too much time. And they're just freaking out because they're like, Jesus is asleep, and we need help here. And the boats are rocking, and the storm, and Jesus gets out and says, be silent, be still. And so Jesus is showing, and Mark is wanting to show us that Jesus has power over nature. We don't have power over nature. God has power over nature. Jesus has power over nature. The next story that immediately follows is that Jesus heals a man with demons, a demon-possessed man. Nobody is able to help this man at all. And Jesus is able to cast out the demons, and he shows his power over the spiritual. Jesus has power over the spiritual and the dark spiritual things of this world. The next story that follows that is Jesus heals a woman who has a bleeding problem. She come and just touches his cloak and her bleeding problem is gone. No other doctors could help her. Nobody else could heal her. What is Mark, what is the word of God wanting to show us that Jesus has power, not over nature, but only nature and over spirits, but Jesus has power over disease. We don't have power over disease. And then the last story in that, Jesus raises a man's daughter to life. He's really on his way to see this, this man's daughter who is very sick and on his way she dies. He said, don't worry about having Jesus come. And Jesus comes anyway and he says that she's just asleep. And he restores life back to this little girl. And the final thing he's wanting to show us, Jesus, he has power over death. We certainly don't have power over death. And in the calming of the storm and in the, the woman that's healed, this is Jesus' response. And I love it, especially it really sets it up for us. Because we can know in our heads. And Jesus knew the disciples could see these miraculous acts of his power over nature and over spirits and over diseases and over death. But this is what he says that you have to do with this. He says, do not fear, only believe. He says to the woman, it's your faith that made you well. You believed in the power that I have over the disease. And so there's this this understanding and this, this process where we want to close the gap between what we believe about God in our head and what we really believe about him in our 
hearts. What are we believing about God in our hearts? And we believe God in our hearts, that's when we'll begin to relinquish control over to God. And we won't try to take control. Because here's a couple of side effects that we can know when we're trying to take control of our lives. We try to take control and we want to do that. A lot of times we have to do that with manipulation, deceit. And that, that brings itself forward. The fruit of that is we get angry and frustrated. We can wear ourselves out when we try to take control with busyness and burnout in our lives. We're just taking on too much in our lives. More than we can handle because we're trying to control our destiny and our future. Just like the guy in the video with a bad job situation that he had taken on. This heavy load kind of control his destiny. And so sometimes we take on too much and that can be a sign that we're trying to take control of our lives. And ultimately what we do when we're trying to take control of our lives is we make our concerns, the concerns of our lives, more important of a concern than the concern of God and the things of God. And when we do that, when we take something and we, we put more worth on it than something that, that God is or that God is concerned about, the Bible would refer to that as an idol. An idol. And so we can worship the idol of control. Something that belongs to God that we want to take away from him. And the idol of control, it'll show itself strongest in an unwavering, relenting determination to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And this idol of control, it can be hidden in some good things. Good things such as self-discipline and certainty. Those are good things. But we can hide really the idol of control in those things. But what happens when my self-discipline fails me? Or what happens when my lack of certainty about the future is erased? Will I be able to trust God's control if I feel like I've been the one in control the whole time? The truth is I have not. You have not been in control. The person so concerned with the idol of control has this greatest nightmare of being uncertain about the future. And the problem with being uncertain about the future is that none of us are certain about the future. We don't, we don't know. We see stories of that every day on the news when people lose their lives tragically in car crashes or whatever it may be. We don't know what our future holds. And so when we have this out of control, we become easily angry or bitter with other people in our life circumstances. And the people uh, with, the, with the idol of control, it leaves others feeling condemned because we don't want to hear what they have to say either. We don't want their advice and wisdom on what's going on because we're in control of our lives. And ultimately, there'll be a, there's a price to be paid in that that will end up lonely and, and constant negative emotion of this worry and anxiety that can take over us in our lives. So how, how do we change? How do we close the gap between our head and our hearts? Well, the Bible says that we're going to change through the work of God. That change is God's work. That he is the one responsible for changing our lives. Heart in the Bible is the center of a person, basically. It would include their mind and the thoughts that we have. It includes our will, our emotions. All of that would be wrapped up in the heart. And the Bible makes it clear that the heart, to protect the heart and what we believe in our hearts is very important. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life. Jesus spoke to this. The things that we do on the outside of us, the things that we say and the things that we do and commit against God, they're really coming from inside of us. They're coming from within our hearts. And God wants to do this work of heart change. And he does this in various 
ways. The Father does this sometimes through discipline and making our life situations look difficult. Listen to Hebrews 12, 10, and 11. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Certainly, life is painful at times, yet God's still in control over that situation to produce a fruit that is pleasing to him. Jesus certainly has a role in changing our hearts. Listen to this in Romans 6, 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. I want to stop right there and talk about what that means. We were buried with Christ in baptism and his death. If we have surrendered our life to Christ, here's the truth that we're believing, is that when Jesus died, even in this issue of control, of all of the wrath that would burn against us in our lives because we look to God and ultimately what we're saying, when we're saying I want control, we're wagging our finger in the face of God and saying, God, you're not in control. I'm in control. Why are you doing this? I can control my life better than you. And God doesn't like that. Because God knows that he's the center of the universe. And God knows that he knows what's best for you as his child and can give you what is best in this life. And knows you're good better than even you or me know our own good. And so all of the, the anger and the wrath that would come through that and the judgment of separation, we're saying when we believe, when we're buried therefore with him in baptism, in his death, that Jesus is taking the wrath that has deserved us on the cross. And the penalty for our sin doesn't go away. The penalty for our sin falls on Jesus Christ. The penalty falls on him. We were buried therefore with him by baptism and the death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in a newness of life. Doesn't just end at the death part. Death and our sin and the wrath of our sin that leads to death did not defeat Jesus. Who is God? Who is this great God that we talked about and that we saw in Isaiah? He is great. He is over everything to the point he, he wanted to prove that even sin and its consequences of death could not defeat him. And so it says that we believe this truth that when we died, we placed our faith on Christ and what he did on the cross. He's been raised to new life for the purpose of what? That we identify him in that same way. He gives us new life. He gives us new hearts. He gives us new desires. He gives us new motives. And he makes us holy. Sanctification is the process of becoming like Jesus. And sanctification is closing the gap between what we know in our heads and what we believe in our hearts, our wills, our emotions, the center of who we are. I love this quote from a book called You Can Change by Tim Chester speaking about this issue of holiness and it being a heart matter. It says, you will rid your life of no sin that you have not first recognized as being pardoned through the cross. This is because holiness always starts in the heart. The essence of holiness is not new behavior, activity, or disciplines. Holiness is new affections, new desires, and new motives that then lead to a new behavior. If you don't see your sin as completely pardoned, then your affections and your desires and your motives will be wrong. You will aim to prove yourself and your focus will be the consequences of your sin rather than the hating the sin itself and desiring God in the first place. Sometimes it's easy to say God is in control 
with our head and with our lips until things don't go our way. Just like in the video where he was talking about whatever your situation may be with your finances or you're trying to raise your children in a godly way and you just, you can't, at the end of the day, you cannot control their behaviors and their hearts. Life transitions that happen, you're moving, you're getting a new job, you don't like your situation, just the simple things in life. And so we need to break this pattern of wanting control and God is doing that and he wants to do that in our hearts by telling us not just, I need to change these behaviors, I need to change this anger behavior and stop being angry. I need to change this anxiety problem and stop being anxious and worrying. What we really need to change, we really need a heart change that says, God, not only am I going to change my outward actions of trying to take control, but God, I don't even want control. That's where it has to start. If we want to release control to God, then we have to come to a place in our hearts where we say, I don't want control. God's in control. He does better than me. So this changing of our hearts. And this will happen through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. For those who belong to God, this happens through the power of the Holy Spirit changing our hearts and our lives. And we have been given a beautiful gift. A beautiful gift in this Christian life through Christ and what he's done. And it's the gift of repentance. Repentance. Repentance is where? Not just that we say, God, I was angry. Forgive me for being angry. We really, repentance is, is, is something, it's a gift, but it's something that we really have to search our souls and say, what is my heart saying about God when I sin in this way? And some of the ways that sin shows itself through anger and anxiety and the things that we've talked about. What is my heart really saying about God? My heart is really saying to God, you're not in control. I'm in control. And so repentance is this idea of changing our hearts. And so at one time I was walking in this direction of thinking that my life is in my hands and in my control. And to repent means it's really a violent term. It means that I'm going to shake, rattle, and roll. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to turn towards this truth. That's in my head, but I know I need it to be in my heart. And I pray for God to make it a part of my heart, for his spirit to be alive in me. And so I change and I completely turn away from what I was walking in here to completely turn towards the truth. God, you're in control and I don't even want control anymore. My desire for control is gone. I want you to be in control. I know that you sit on your seat in control of this universe. That's repentance. And if I'm walking this way, I'm not walking this way. I'm not doing the shuffle. Between this and this. That's not biblical repentance. Repentance is I'm walking in this direction and violently because of the voice of God. Because of his spirit pursuing me and calling this, me this way. Towards the truth of who he is in control. That I hear that voice and I violently turn away from the way I was walking once before. And I'm walking in this way. And I'm believing this truth. Not just in my head but in my heart about who God is. And this is a gift and I would urge you to consider, this is the spiritual discipline that the Bible would call us to make a habit. You can be in the habit of reading your Bible and praying, but not being in the habit of daily repentance and examining your heart and saying, what is my heart not believing about God? And still be far from God. This is the habitual daily spiritual discipline that we need in our lives, and it's the discipline of repentance. Turn towards God. Turn towards his control. One last thought before we end. 
when we think about this idea of control. Even trying to display this in the, in the daily things of life, like being frustrated and being in a traffic jam. All of these manifest that really we want to be in control of our lives. And sometimes it seems like it can be easier to be, let God be in control of the bigger things in our lives than the smaller things of our lives. Let me tell you the point where, where Jesus showed ultimate proof that he's in, in control. It's in his death on the cross as he gave up control, willingly and voluntarily, control of his life to accomplish something far beyond our control. We would all admit in here, being made right in relationship with God as sinful people to a holy, great, sovereign God, that is beyond our control. And yet I hope, I know for many of us in here, we have trusted God with control in this issue. Control that he has made us right with God. And by nothing that we've done, we couldn't control it at all. But through his death and resurrection, he has made us in right relationship with God. He has done something far beyond our control. And we would trust him with that. And if we can trust him with that, we can trust him with the simple, small things in our lives. God is great. So I don't have to be, you don't have to be in control. Would you pray with me?